Hi everybody, so before the actual episode begins, I just wanted to do this little disclaimer because we decided to do this episode a little bit differently. You'll hear it. We have uh, a special guest and this episode's a little bit more serious, but because of a few audio issues, there's like this weird sort of cackling sort of thing going on in some of the audio. It kind of hurt some of the audio a bit. We couldn't use our guest's audio immediately. I had to use my backup audio that I always have on case so things are a little bit rough and you'll, you'll notice it it's I probably I didn't want to re-record everything because I wasn't sure when we'd be able to get the guest back and honestly you can still hear us fine there's just like this little undercurrent of noise so I hope that doesn't annoy you too much and I hope you still enjoy the episode I think it's really informative I think it's a little different and so right now uh you'll hear me segue into myself as the real episode begins so three two one now hi welcome to intentional sounding the draw play podcast and happy birthday to america and freedom because america started in 1776 and not a fucking day earlier Absolutely. We are recording this on July 4th, even though it won't go up. So, yes, happy birthday for America. I'm your host, Drawplay Dave Rapocho. With me, as always, is JPP's lost finger, Sam Grezis. <laughs> Man, here, here's the thing. I probably, I am probably not worth as much as JPP's lost finger, so that actually kind of makes me sad. Oh. Like if I was trying it, to be funny, and now you make you, me a little if sad. You, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm literally wondering, if you do the math of, like, how much of uh, JPP's body mass was contained in that finger at the time he blew it off and did, like, some quick math to figure out, like, how much he makes a year versus how much... How I much he lost year. because of it. Yeah, like, I am sure... <laughs> I am like a hundred percent sure that finger is worth more than me. Well, anyway, we got a really special episode for you today. I've been looking forward to this. Um, we so if you're listening to this, obviously, I assume you read my comic. I'd be kind of surprised if you listen to this and don't read the comic because that would that wouldn't make a lot of sense. How would you even know this existed? But if you do read my comic, you may have noticed that every time I draw a doctor, it's always a tall guy with long red hair and that doctor is a real person and we have that actual doctor on our podcast with us today so welcome to the podcast dr swickles hey thanks for having me guys absolutely and so for this episode we wanted to bring him on and we just wanted to talk about medical issues in the nfl we're just like we can talk about concussions we're gonna ask a whole bunch of other questions and we have like an actual a actual doctor here that can answer these questions without like just us being speculative because we don't know anything so somehow first... we have a real person doctor on this <laughs> this fucking show so welcome to the show dr swickles uh, the first thing i want to ask you is technically what kind of doctor are you i am an anesthesiologist well an md uh i graduated from the university of miami i used to work at the hospital where jason pierre paul had his uh hand operated on so it all, it all comes full circle. <laughs> so, uh, with since you're on, right, we might as well get right into it. Probably with concussions, and <laughs> sure, the first question we had listed down here is how many concussions does it take to turn your penis gray? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? Never seen a gray penis, so uh, I'm gonna toss that one out to anecdotal evidence you're 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 looking at the wrong kinds of porn my friend <laughs> well this is obviously a uh, a ben roethlisberger mm -hmm, fallback joke mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for anyone who doesn't get that right. reference there was the whole he's got a gray penis joke so <laughs> if you weren't in the know on that one that that's where that came from we weren't just randomly thinking about gray penises but that's definitely how we wanted to start this with so, gray penises. Actually, the I guess the first real serious question I want to ask you is how much do you follow like the concussion problem in the NFL? Like, uh, pretty thoroughly. Uh, I read League of Denial. I read a lot of journal articles about concussions. Um, whilst I'm not a neurologist or a neurosurgeon, uh, I've always been interested in head trauma and traumatic brain injury. Um, so it's always been a field of uh, research that I followed, and, and I've done so for 
was for some family reasons. Uh, my father had a traumatic brain injury when I was very young. Um, so again, it's kind of one of those things that I've followed throughout the years, and uh, I'm pretty up to date on what the NFL's concussion policies and and what they have no what they're trying to do going forward. Obviously, do you, I? I don't think they're doing enough. Do you think they're at least on the right track, or? It's hard to say that they're on the right track, but you also don't want to say that they're not, simply because, like, yes, they are doing things. Are they moving at the pace that I or probably most, you know, medical professionals would like to see them move at? I wouldn't say so. But it's also one of those things that you you have to be happy with whatever changes you get. Uh, You're not going to affect change overnight. You're not going to see the game change to the way that I think it'll look in 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, You can't do that in a single season. People will rebel. They'll lose viewers they'll lose sponsors it just it just won't work out but 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 at the same time right the point you're making is is a valid one in that the fact that change isn't coming as fast as it really needs to means that you know people's literal lives are hanging in the balance right here so 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 right i mean that that's what kind of muddies it a little bit right I, I just I just think that it's kind of like with anything, it's kind of ridiculous uh, or maybe naive to assume mm-hmm. an overnight change. Now Absolutely. there are some changes I think they could do today that would you know help the game. Um, but again, in terms of making the game, it's never going to be completely one hundred percent safe. But to minimize the risk as much as possible, that's not going to happen overnight. Do you uh, do you think concussions are how big a risk to the game do you think they are? Because some people are like, these aren't that big a deal, right. and other people are like, the game is going to be gone in 10 years. And I personally, I don't I don't think the game's going to be gone, but I do think it needs to change. Yeah, I think so. The other thing that we need to talk about, aside from concussions, is, and really what this all comes into, is, you know, CTE, chronic, chronic traumatic right. Um, the thing is, concussions aren't the only things that cause that. In fact, the, most people tend to think that it's what are called the subconcussive blows. In other words, the hits that people take to the head that don't overtly cause a concussion, but happen over and over and over. In- like Lyman connections, mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. happens every play. Sure. On every snap, you have, you know, you know, let's say five offensive linemen and, you know, four or five or three defensive linemen basically slamming into each other. From yeah, running into each other. Away. And yeah, that, well, that see. there isn't causing a concussion. Uh, they're still doing it multiple, multiple times. And, and again, I know this is anecdotal, but look at where we're seeing the worst cases of CTE. It's always right. in the uh, linemen and the, you know, the centers and stuff like that. So I think what you need to see is not just eliminate concussions, but eliminate those subconcussive blows. So some suggestions I've seen to this fact is to maybe eliminate the down stance so that you have to be standing. And I think what would happen sure. there is you would no longer see these big behemoth offensive linemen. Instead, pass protection in the run game would be based more on speed and agility. So if you did something like eliminate the down stance, make them stand a little bit further apart, you'd see somewhat smaller, more agile linemen. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, because I think already we're throwing, you know, we're pushing the limits of the human body as to how big mm-hmm. and fast these linemen can get. Sure. Yeah, the the some of the offensive linemen, I one thing I've always noticed is whenever offensive linemen retire, they either balloon up in weight because they're not working out, or they just drop the weight like a stone. And so yeah. many of them get so yeah. thin because they have to maintain such a ridiculous diet and workout schedule just to stay that size. Well, and you can't maintain both, right? Either you like start eating like a normal person or you start working out like a normal person while still on that same diet and, you know, it's not <laughs> yeah, the human body doesn't really work that way when when you're not doing strenuous activity like 7 days a week. Yeah, it's not the healthiest of lifestyles. <laughs> I I really think that I I never I haven't seen or heard that like suggestion of eliminating the down stance before and I actually think that's a really interesting one uh to me at least because the way that the way I'm imagining that in my head is is less like people are like 6 inches from each other and they run at each other full speed i'm i'm kind of imagining it more like people are standing up like knees kind of bent 
further away from each other but also more spread out and kind of like it's more coordination based like you're trying to you are trying to pancake on every play uh the offensive line so that you can get to the quarterback whereas the offensive line is trying to do the same thing to you kind of like it's more of a balance thing than literally like bull rushing at a person right yeah when you're both standing up, I feel like that fast first jump means a little less. It, uh, I, I would agree with that. And it's, it's more about your to... footwork and how you're yeah. able to manage the oncoming train. So you're, you're probably going to see like a lot of like a little bit of stutter stepping as players try and figure out a way, the best way to get around the opposition or to connect with the opposition if you're an offensive lineman. I would, I would love that. I think that I, would be I'm, super cool. <laughs> I personally kind of agree that I think that the NFL is probably going to trend in a more l- less um, impact and more mm-hmm. shifty, uh, like agility kind of based game. So you're gonna see you're gonna see a lot less running backs who just like charge right into the line and connect with people, and you're gonna see a lot more at Jamal Charles, like the shifty players who are better in space because there's not gonna be the rules against tackling and everything are, are going to try and keep these players safe. They're going to try and minimize the impact. So I, I definitely think the game, the players are going to get a little bit smaller and everything's going to become more shifty. And that's how the game is probably going to change the next decade sure. or so, at least the, the way it's currently trending. I don't, I don't think concussions and th- that sort of issue are going to destroy football unless the owners, the ownership just continue to completely ignore it. And sweep it under and pretend that's, it doesn't exist. The They're gonna have like to adapt, thing. and the, those adaptation, those adaptations will come slowly, as uh, you mentioned, because you can't do it all in one season. It that that would that would cause a huge uproar. It's already enough of an uproar to start like what like a couple minor rule changes. You remember how many people were mad the kickoffs when not not the kickoffs, but that rule where they removed it. You can't lead with the crown of your helmet. If you're were people a running mad back about that, and, I don't oh yeah, that. people Jeez. were people were really mad about that, saying like put basically put them in dresses, like you can't do that. And when you watch those players, like that that was a completely reasonable rule, and it doesn't even it totally happen all is. that often. No, wow, I so I I was not aware of that backlash. That's 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 really interesting. I think what you might also see in the NFL would be. Uh, See, the, the problem that the players have with this, with these rules, is the uh, inconsistent enforcement. And I think that's players' yeah. problem with or with referees in general. Like, how is this pass interference? This play and not this play, you know. And holding too is a big one for that. Yeah, uh, but with the uh, you know the head the head shots. I mean, how many times last year or even the years before did you see you know a shot that looked it, live looked terrible? You were just like, oh my gosh, that guy's dead. But then you show that different angles in the replays and you find out like there was no head to head. It was, they literally hit arm to arm or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. And then the, mm-hmm. the player gets the flag and stuff like that. And you know, he may or may not get fined. I just think you need to see a little bit more transparency in order to earn the player's trust from the league and from the referees that, Hey, I'm not going to be unnecessarily flagged. I'm not going to be unnecessarily fined. Um, and maybe they need to do take it more outside of the game. And what they should do is, like, rather than injecting from the game, be like, all right, we're going to look at what you did, take body of work into account, things like that, and then, rather than fines, start doing your suspensions, like, skipping straight to suspensions. Sure. Maybe one or two, kind of like, all right, I understand that happens type thing. But, yeah, you have if you want to get the players to sign on, first you have to be transparent about it, and if you want to get the players to actually respond to the those uh rules then you need to threaten games not just you know fines paychecks or flags the issue the issue with that though is that the league needs to inspire trust in the players first for players well well right but for players to take any kind of like suspension like seriously and as an impetus to change on-field behavior if if their on-field behavior is actually like dangerous right if if the player doesn't trust the league or, or if the league rather hasn't earned the trust of the player being like listen you know we're calling it like we're calling it consistently every time blah 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 this is in we're not doing this because 
you know, we're not doing this in the interest of, um, of like corporate, whatever we're doing this in the interest of like keeping you and your fellow teammates safe. If the players don't believe that, or if the league doesn't, hasn't given the players, uh, any reason to believe that the way that the players will view the suspensions is like, I got suspended for a bullshit call. Right. And yeah. like, God, goddamn, like our, our commissioners is terrible, you know, blah, blah, One blah, thing blah. I will say it's... that I, I've heard Rodney Harrison talk about this and for him, fines were almost nothing at all to him. The only I, thing that yeah. really got him to pay attention was suspensions. Like, if, I, yep. I, I do think that they need to start suspending people for bad stuff a little bit a little bit more liberally just to try and scare it over. You're, you're going to have the backlash. You're going to have the players like, I don't know, Vontae's perfect. Who'd be like, <laughs> oh, this is kind of dumb, even though I basically tried to kill Antonio Brown. I don't know. I want to bring it back a little bit because we were talking about how this, like the CTE tends to happen in like the down linemen because they're the ones who are really getting impacted as often. But would you what what would you think is the least healthy position to play? Oh geez, that's a good question. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, yeah. basically, in what sense? Like, because there are some positions like the linemen that you know. Overall, I'd have to say linemen, but uh, you know, because aside from the head stuff, their knees. I mean, every play. That's why every lineman wears you know sixteen different braces. You'll see them on. Um, right. So because of the fact that they end up at the bottom of piles and things get twisted and torn, thus. Uh, position I think has the uh, spot for the single most devastating injury, uh, well, kick returner. <laughs> uh, oh sure, yeah. On the field for that because you basically have two people, two teams running full speed directly at each other. But you know, wide receiver, uh, especially going across the middle, you know that has potential for some significant danger. Um, any, any, you know, secondary or uh, you know linebacker or anything like that who just doesn't have good tackling technique i mean how many times have we seen in college high school um yeah even someone you know goes in and they end up with a you know a neck or spine injury and so all the positions are definitely dangerous you know running back is (laughs) probably going to be the one that gets beat up the most so to speak um so there's really not one if you want your kids to play football, have them be long snappers. That's my. <laughs> <laughs> it's not bad advice. Yeah, because if you're a long snapper, then you could go on uh, America's Got Talent and be a little magician sideshow. There you go. Call back it, to last week. The uh, the other thing is like long snappers, punters, people people in non-contact like special teams roles are consistently some of the coolest people on on football teams. There's fear of longevity you're not going to be out yeah of that's also like true years if you can do it like i i like what's the i was looking at a couple different long snappers one time because you know he's football nerd and like half half the guys have been in the league like over 10 years mm-hmm. even if you're a bad kicker because kickers are streaky you'll you'll just you'll have a long career as long as you can get it through the uprights well enough even if you have a bad year and you get shifted off to another team you'll be okay like it it seems like the one thing I will say when uh, all this, when the CTE stuff started to get really big, I remember Chris Cluey brought up, like, he started talking about how, uh, like, football players know what they sign up for. And the entire time I'm sitting there thinking, you're a punter. You don't get touched. You you get touched maybe once or twice a game. Like, I understand what you're saying, but from your standpoint, shut up. That's that's the other thing. Like I agree with Chris Cluey on a lot of things, a lot of things. But that was one where I, I, I like I follow him on Twitter. I was like, so about that. No. Chris Cluey's one of those people who I I'm I agree with pretty much everything he says, but I kind of hate his personality. Sure, sure. I, I find his personality kind of obnoxious so it's it's like oh you're right but shut up but but i don't want to agree with you (laughs) he's that friend of yours when you're out at the bar and like the you know waitress or bartender's like uh is he with you and you're like yes uh, he is kind (laughs) of but you know we'll just we'll, we'll take care of it you know i was gonna say you give you 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 give him that look that's like 
Yeah, they're with me, but like, I know, I know what you are thinking right now about that person. <laughs> That's usually me, by the way, in the group. I'm that guy. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm completely aware, he says. <laughs> so I got a couple other questions that we can go back to. Um, we got one question here that I think is pretty good. Are there any undiscussed or underdiscussed health risks in football do you, you think deserve more attention? Uh, well, the one that's you know always been under the table has been the head injury stuff, and that obviously has recently come to the uh, forefront and been a main discussion. Uh, but you know, long-term effects of you know, and really it's all athletics, um, you know, arthritis and things like that in the later ages. But also there's, and I have a feeling we'll get into this later on too. But so this might be our little segue. But the treatment of those things. Whether that's uh, using non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, uh, the most popular one or the one that you hear thrown around is the Tordal, which is usually given as an injection, and it's a great pain reliever. Use it a lot in the hospital setting, um, and it's great because it's not an opiate. Uh, but then there's also the opiates, and you know that leads to obviously addiction and further issues, especially in these guys who you know, take them like candy and they're, you know, given out like candy essentially in the locker room. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's not necessarily the, uh, conditions that aren't talked about, but the treatment of said conditions, uh, which lead to other side effects and, you know, in the case of the opiates, you know, dependency and abuse. Do you think it would just be more effective if you just rubbed dirt on it and got back <laughs> out there? Once a surgeon is done closing and they, uh, Dress the wound. I always open it back up, throw a handful of dirt, rub it in. <laughs> way, way better. Good. So, actually, as an anesthesiologist, and I know you're down there in South Florida, have you actually put any NFL players to sleep? Uh, I have not. Um, I've never worked on an NFL player. I wasn't there, per se, but I was around when uh, Sean Taylor came in, um, and that was obviously a really big deal. Um but I've never, I've actually never like had a famous person or a celebrity as a uh, as a patient. I've known people who have, um, but I've never directly interacted with anyone of consequence. That would that would feel so powerful. This mighty, this mighty, mighty football player comes in, and you get to put them to sleep. <laughs> oh, don't get me wrong. I've seen people that absolutely could be football players. Yeah. Sure. Giant human beings, because apparently those exist now. Um, but yeah, so I've had some big people. I've had I've had people where we need special tables, <laughs> <laughs> or the table has it's broken. That has definitely happened a couple times. Jeez, they're Damn. just big. So keeping the uh, subject on painkillers, actually, uh, what are what is your thought thoughts on medical marijuana for like painkilling? So the, I think it's a promising route. I absolutely do. I also think there needs to be more research done. You know, marijuana is a Schedule One drug, meaning at some point the DEA and Congress listed it as uh, no medical uses whatsoever. Cocaine, uh, amphetamines, heroin, and opiates, those are all Schedule Two, meaning they do have some medical use, which means it's actually easier for me to do research on any of those three than it is to do on marijuana because you can't get any federal funding to for marijuana research. Yeah, uh, it's just that's because it's Schedule One, um, and you can't prove that it has medical value without doing research. A bit of a catch twenty two. Uh, so any funding has to come from outside resources, which obviously contains its own you know hurdles and problems and things like that. That being said, as far to the as far as the efficacy and its use, I think it it is promising. I think it could be used as a as a painkiller. Um, I think what you're seeing now in not just medical marijuana states, but also like Washington and Colorado and Oregon, woo! Yeah, well, you're starting to you're starting to see experimentation in terms of the dispensaries and you know uh, even at the you know university level research where they're you know crossbreeding and selectively you know. Uh, because it's not just THC in marijuana. There's thousands of different chemicals, and some of them help with pain relief. Some of them make you hungry. Some of them make you sleepy. That's why you see these different strains marketed for 
you know, this is good for insomnia, this is good for nausea, this is good for X, Y, and Z. So the trick is to continue to find out which specific strains and which specific uh, compounds in marijuana help for what specific things. And the nice thing would be is we could isolate a bunch of those and pull them out, and then we can just, you know, give them in pill form, and then you get just what you need, which is right, the right. pain-killing action or just the sedation or just the, you know, anti-nausea properties. And that's really what you're going to see in the future, and that's why I think, you know, that type of research is really important because for a lot of things we're using drugs that are either ineffective or, you know, expensive or, and again, in the case of the mm-hmm. opiates for pain relief, downright dangerous. Do you, do you think the DEA, Congress, like, do you think they will reclassify uh, marijuana in that way? Or, like, if, if, if you do think that, like, timeline-wise, what would you kind of expect, like, next year, next five years? Like, I would definitely say within five to ten years. I would mm-hmm. think within five. We're already starting to see that push to make it easier to do that type of research that I'm talking about. Uh, it's, it's you know, every once in a while you see a bill, I mean, bills come and go in Congress all the time, so who mm-hmm. really knows how much traction it's going to get. But I think in, in the next five to ten years, uh, you're going to see two things. I think you're going to see it legalized recreationally in the majority of the country, and I think with that, then you're going to see a willingness of, well, if it's legal to, you know, for... Joe's six-pack to smoke, well, maybe we should look at its medical applications for not just NFL players, but for, you know, millions of patients suffering from, you know, all the different effects that I've listed earlier, whether it's insomnia, you know, nausea, there's all kinds of things. Ah, I like that. So, let's move on to another pretty good question. Why, um, Why shouldn't athletes be allowed to use whatever they need to recover faster from injuries? Uh... Let's throw out the potential for abuse because that's yeah, gonna, yeah. Uh, right. That that was that's the one thing that immediately jumps to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, same. It's kind of the obvious thing of like, oh, I hurt my ankle, I need HGH. You know, like. <laughs> so I'm in favor of I'm in favor of yeah anything that if they go through the proper channels with a physician, um, and this is kind of a pet peeve of mine is about the you know team physicians. I think I think I think the NFL Players Association should have a team of physicians that is just assigned to be the player's physicians, so yeah. that yeah. way the player can always get a second opinion. Um, oh, sure. You know, because um, I think, you know, team doctors are, you know, their responsibilities to the team, not necessarily the patient. Not to, or or the NFL, right? Yeah, and I would like to think there's a lot of team doctors out there who do take that responsibility seriously and do have the patient's best interest at hand, but it's kind of a conflict of interest on, you know, who's paying your bills, you know? Well, well, yeah. There was also that big story about the oh god i can't remember the Colts his name, player but, was it no yeah, no it was the chargers the chargers team doctor who was like a quack and i god i can't remember his name but he was uh like there were multiple like lawsuits brought against him because he just he literally like just like no nah, you're good rub some dirt on it get on out there and like was doing all of these uh very like unproven procedures on players and um and just like the players didn't like him because because they weren't being helped uh the team loved him because uh their players were out on the field the whole time i'm I'm trying to look up his name but it was it was a big thing like deadspin had a whole like they followed this guy for like years and were like why does he still have a job? Yeah. Um, but to get back to it, like I said, uh, assuming that, you know, uh, under proper guidance from a proper physician, I think a player should be able to do what anyone else is able to do, whether it's rehabbing with HGH, whether it's, you know, using whatever procedures, whether you're Kobe and going to Europe and doing who knows what. Um, mm. I think any of that stuff should be allowed, as, again, as long as it's under the guidance of, a physician whose uh, sole allegiance is to the recovery of the patient and not to anyone else, no other entity. Sure, sure. Uh, David Chow, by the way, that that was the guy's name. I'm sorry. He's the right. guy, isn't he? Like the guy on Twitter that's always like, "Oh yeah, he's going to need an ACL replacement," and then like three days later, like minor MCL sprain, he's out two days. Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> 
I just remember I was personally thinking of the Colts player who they got he got prescribed something by the Colts doctors and he was a little skeptical about it so he went to he like emailed a message like five other regular doctors that weren't related to the team on if he should take this substance and every one of those other doctors were like no what's wrong with you don't do that <laughs> yeah i remember i remember that too and then he got cut yeah he got cut they they put him on ir like a day later because he wouldn't take the pills that's what i'm saying i'm like there i'm sure there are tons of physicians that work with the teams that are really good and you know do have the players best interest at heart and i'm sure they've butted heads a few times but you know it only takes one or two of these you know like you said quacks and now you're throwing a guy out there who shouldn't be out there. You're giving him drugs he shouldn't be getting. It's it's just right. you know very irresponsible. One thing I've okay to bring this to a slightly new topic. I, I don't know if maybe I'm just paying more attention now, but I feel like we're seeing a lot of non-contact injuries happening. And I, I maybe this isn't the right question for you, but what do you think is the most optimal playing surface to protect? players knees and such from non-contact injuries so i think it's not necessarily a playing surface i mean obviously if you're playing in mud or you know dc then (laughs) i was gonna say my my first answer was lime jello yeah uh so that's a bad thing to play in um Uh, but really, I think with these non-contact injuries, I think what you're seeing is that these players are getting so big and so fast, and muscles can grow, and, and you know, you hypertrophy them, you get them bigger to make you stronger and faster. Uh, but that doesn't happen with ligaments. There's no, there's no, you know, making a ligament stronger. So what's happening is you've got these huge guys that are now accelerating, turning on a dime, doing things that human beings 50 years ago could never do. And I think that's it's just getting to the point where you're putting so much strain on these ligaments, on tendons, on bones that they were not meant to get. And even same thing with the muscles. That's why you're seeing muscle tears is because their muscle is just so strong that's literally ripping itself off the bone. Wow. Sure. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about it that way, but that that actually is probably what's happening. That's it's a really good point. I um. ACLs used to be like this major death sentence for players, and now they're they're coming back from these major tears, like within like a season. I mean, well, you, you still ACL tears are still like you're gone for that season, but then you come back. They're not nearly the death sentence they used to be. Do you do you think coming back is just because we have better science, or like I'm not sure. I, so I, let me read this off because this is the question I'm looking at. Um, do you think the improved seasons and such, the improved comebacks can be attributed to these players really getting involved in sports science and proper exercise under doctor supervision during the off season? Yeah, I think the ability to come back from uh, injury is, uh, you know, as much as I'd like to take credit as the physician, it's less the physicians and the surgeons than it is the physical therapists. They're the ones who have the real... Uh, big job when it comes to rehabbing that injury, coming back from that injury. I mean, you can do surgery perfect, uh, but if the player doesn't, you know, go to rehab or doesn't follow a strict regimen or doesn't have a good physical therapist to get him through that, then you know it's not gonna it's not gonna do much. You know, you have to really force the player to get through it, stick to it. Um, fortunately, most players, because of the fact that they're so driven and they've been in this type of you know, okay, this is just a different routine. It's the same thing. Instead of working out and doing this, 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 now I'm working out this part of my body. Uh, so a lot of players do have that discipline, do have that ability to just say, all right, I'm going to do this rehab, no matter how difficult, how tough it may be. Um, as far the science, as far as the like, like the surgeries and stuff like that's there. It's essentially unchanged for quite some time. Um, you know, you basically just are replacing it with uh, some type of graft with the ACL. And then, again, it's all up to the rehab. Now, the other thing that's a big issue is, uh, you know, in an ACL tear is, is there other damage? Um, cause sometimes you'll have the, the, you hear about it less cause it's not torn as easily for mostly anatomic reasons is the PCL, the, which is the posterior collateral ligament. Um, and then you also have your MCL and your LCL and things like that. You know, those things can all tear too. Um, uh, but again, depending on the, how they are, I mean, hell, you've seen the Sean Livingston injury, and look at him today. He looks, you know, pretty good. I mean, he yeah. looked like he tore his knee 
and half, essentially, you know, you can come back from them, but it's all a matter of, you know, timing and how much they're willing to put in the work in terms of the rehab and physical therapy. That's the biggest part. Uh, sometimes you can have things like scar tissue formation, which there's really no helping that. It's just kind of it's something that happens. There's really not much you can do to prevent it uh, surgically or rehab-wise, and sometimes that can interfere, and some, that's why sometimes you hear about players just getting a knee scope uh, uh, where they clear out some of that tissue. Um, again, that's one of those things that you can't really control. But uh, What do you think is the most career-threatening injury these days? Not like, not like long-term, like with the concussions and stuff, but like if something was to happen immediately, yeah. Like, what do you think would immediately impact completely? Well, I mean, spinal injuries. Yeah. I mean, players getting, you know, paralyzed. Um, you know, short of that, I mean, one thing that I, I don't know if it's going, if it was unreported back in the day, but it seems like we're seeing more uh, solid organ injuries, whether it's a kidney laceration, liver laceration. We're also seeing, mm -hmm. you know, punctured lungs from, you know, ribs. And these are, you know, commonly seen in car accidents, but when you think about the forces involved in an NFL-sized player tackling another NFL-sized player, you're, they're essentially getting into a car accident every time they're tackled. They just, yeah. So it's one of those things that is uh, uh, either, again, this, this might be like, you know, kind of a, a bias that, like, oh, I'm hearing about now more and more, but uh, it's kind of hard, you know, for me to go back and think about in the 90s what that was like or whether, whether it was reported then, so... That's cool. Um, one thing I... Uh, so here, here's a good one. If you're the chief medical officer of the NFL, what, what do you do on day one? On day one, I think... Uh, well, one of the things I've always been... I've talked about before uh, is uh, we should definitely have independent medical advisors. And by that, I mean kind of like how like, we have the referees. They're independent. They're, you know, they're hired by the NFL... They're paid by the NFL, but the referees have their own union, and they're, uh, you know, essentially independent. So, have a, 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 at every game, have you know at least two to three doc. Doesn't even need to be a doctor. Maybe like one doctor, a, a nurse, you know, just someone who knows what they're looking at to review every single play as it's happening and immediately say, "Hey, that guy got hit." really hard in the head. I want him examined. And they're not allowed back into the game until they go through some type of examination. That would be one change that would make. Because, again, you have team doctors that are, are coaches and things like that that are just like, how many times have we seen a player like, what the hell are they doing out there? They're clearly concussed. And then you hear yeah. three days later that they have a neck injury because if they say they had a concussion. Yeah, then you're admitting you screwed up. The, the one that always jumps out to me is a few years ago, I think it was Stuart Bradley on the Eagles. He he like made a tackle and he got up and he stumbled and fell over, and he was clearly wobbly. He had the most obvious concussion I think I've ever seen on a football field, and the Eagles doctors seemed to completely ignore him. And he was back out there like a play later, and I was furious. Well, you also had uh, you know Colt McCoy getting you know beheaded, yeah. James Harrison. And then his dad being like, what the hell is he doing out there, you know, and going back out there. So that's what that's the, you know, one big thing that I think you need to remove. And I think that also would actually be a good image for the NFL because that would actually send the message, hey, we do care about player safety rather than this, oh, it's on the team, the team will do it, and we trust the teams to look out for the best interest of the players. Well, clearly that's not the case. No, teams are trying to win. Right. And although that might be in the player's... Uh, perceived best interest, you know, long term, it's not, or you know, not always. Absolutely. I was also thinking. I think it was last season where Roethlisberger got injured against the Ravens, and it was he was it was same as situation as Colt McCoy. Roethlisberger pretty much had a concussion. They put him in for that final drive, and he just wasn't the same quarterback. And he threw the game-ending interception. Sure. Yeah. Like I said, I think there just needs to be uh, some type of independent medical board for the NFL whose they are not responsible to any particular team. They are similar to referees, that they are uh, just there for the players. And like the actually independent. Yeah. And have yeah. the ability to, yes, and have the ability to, have the ability to stop a game and remove a player uh, if need be. 
referees uh, technically already have that ability, but referees aren't. It's not really their job to. It's not really their job. It's not their area of expertise, and also like their job is to look at everything that's going out on the field, not just like one player who may or may not have gotten hit in the head. Yeah. Right. You'd ha- basically have to assign a referee to every single player for that to work, and that that would be absurd. <laughs> so I think it would be good if you had, you know, a panel of like say two to three, you know, uh, medical experts or people in the in the medical field who know what they're looking for, know what to do, and uh, having some type of evaluation from then on. I think that would go a long way to earning trust of both the public and the players. It's kind of depressing when. As a fan, I can l- watch a game on TV and see something obviously medically wrong with a player, and it's not being addressed by the people on the field. Right. It's frustrating as hell. Because, I mean, if we're seeing it, obviously they have to be seeing it, and it, it feels negligent. So, yeah, I, I think that's that's a pretty good idea to do that first, because that's, that's something the NFL like, sort of tried to do that, when the concussion thing started coming up, but, but obviously they didn't try. They, at the they same NFL'd time, it. You know, they, yeah. they, they, it was more for show than it was for actual medical help. Well, it wasn't actual change. It wasn't, like I said, it wasn't independent uh, people whose job is just to do that. What doesn't make sense to me is the, is the fact that the NFL doesn't seem to realize that you know dealing with this in some sort of meaningful way is beneficial to them in the long run, right? It doesn't do them any good to to do some like uh, uh well yeah, to like They're 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 just afraid that one of these independent experts is going to start stopping the game and making it a little bit more obvious just how dangerous football is and they're not going to be able to sweep them under the rug. That in, you know, there is there is going to be an obvious image problem, unfortunately, of, you know, let's say they uh they stop a game and take Cam Newton out in the fourth quarter and they're down by three driving, you know, that's going to have controversy in it. Like, how can you do that? Oh, my gosh. Especially if it turns out that that concu- that the, whatever testing they do comes back, you know, negative, that there is nothing wrong with them. Yeah. Um, so there is a risk. There is a downside. But that's why I think it needs to be as independent as possible, because if you do that in the long run, you know, referees make bad calls all the time. But it's luck and... The uh, idea that over time, the bad calls equal the good calls. Right, and it all evens out. Uh, so you need to, like I said, you need to make it independent, kind of similar to referees. And yeah, there are going to be some bad calls. Of course there are. There's always bad calls. There's no perfect system in place. Uh, but in this case, when we're talking about player safety, it's, you know, this is the one area that you really want to err on the side of caution. I was going to yeah. say, right, when when people might die... Right, yeah. like when it might actually, or maybe not kill them. Not that, right, but right. Do you think we're fairly close to actually diagnosing CTE in live players? Uh, I think so. I think uh, imaging techniques are getting better and better, and uh, you know, CTE is still kind of a, a new-ish disease. Um, we have a bunch of ideas about the pathogenesis of it, how it happens, and things like that. But, you know, imaging, like I said, and all that stuff make it very difficult to diagnose and separate it out from what could be other processes going on, such as, you know, Alzheimer's and things like that, um, which in their own right are also difficult to diagnose in a way. Yeah. So you have, like, two very similar diseases, and you're trying to, you know, tell which is which and what's caused by what, which as far as, like, you know, the care of the patient may not make a difference, but as far as studying its causes and the epidemiology and the factors and the long run that that stuff is really important uh as far as like diagnosis of concussions you know that's also kind of difficult to do um usually you have a neurologist uh ask a series of questions um you can do ct scans which can show bruising and stuff like that but that usually shows up much later plus like you're not going to take a player go get a ct scan and then put them back in because you know that's a, that's kind of ridiculous, and B, you're you're not gonna like you may not even see much at all because it takes time for those types of changes to to come up. But there's actually a couple interesting uh, new devices or ways out there of checking for concussions. So right now the way that they do is they have like a, a battery of tests that they ask players when they're healthy and they ask them their baseline. You know, they ask them a series of questions, they ask them some math questions, they ask them who's president, all all kinds of things. You know. And you've heard 
over and over before from countless players that they intentionally bomb those questions. Yeah. Five plus three, I'll ask 53. You know? <laughs> bomb the questions left and right for the sole purpose of that if they do get hit and they do get concussed, well, their baseline hasn't changed. They're now, they're, okay, you, you said 5 plus 3 was 53 when you were perfectly healthy, and you just said it now, so get back out there, you know. Um, You're just dumb. Yeah, right. exactly. That's, right. that's what it's being written off as, you know. Like, uh, unfortunately, because, you know, it's it's sometimes, I mean, obviously, it's not obviously that, you know, egregious, but it is bad. Um, so the trick is really to be able to have, uh, ideally, a, a quick way of, objectively identifying a concussion. And I've seen two different things. The first one I saw was they use uh, basically uh, what we call transmagnetic stimulation. It uses a combination of that and ultrasound to detect blood flow rates through various arteries, with the idea being that when you're injured, various arteries will constrict and relax. They won't have as good of local control over the size of their blood vessel. Your blood vessels in your body, all your arteries, and to some extent your veins, will expand and contract and become larger and smaller to either increase pressure, do various things. So the idea is that we can use that technology to look and see what those arteries are doing, and from there we can say, oh, that's that's not good, that should not be doing that. Um, the other way to do it is that there are some bodily functions that you have no control over. Like, you don't think about the way that you breathe, but you are breathing constantly. Um, but you know, unless there's something pathologic with you, if I hit you in the right spot on your knee, you're going to kick out. You're going to have a reflex, and there's, you know, a variety of reflexes. Well, one of the reflexes that we have that we kind of can't control is uh, various reactions towards light, especially on the periphery. So uh, someone developed this yeah. helmet that's almost like a virtual reality type set they put on, on them, and there's a camera in there that looks at their eyes, and then it gives various pinpoint flashes of light all around. And it detects how quickly your, it takes your eye to react to those. And like dilation and stuff, or and tracking, like because uh, your okay. eye, when things come into field of view, your eye will automatically, you know, it's kind of an evolutionary. Just response. kind of look at it. After that, as soon as something comes into your field of view, your obvious thing is to just dart to it, especially when you do it in a specific way where there's you know darkness, and then you're just putting pinpoints of light around. So sure. the idea is that we're looking at that, and we're looking at those reaction times, and there's been some promising data suggests that, you know, the slower reaction times, the, you know, less dilation, less constriction, things like that, uh, uh, are, go hand in hand with concussion. So hopefully we'll be able to, when those, you know, independent medical officials stop play, you know, that guy will be off the field for, you know, five minutes, you know, which case I'm sure someone can burn a timeout. They can go to TV time and get their sponsor money. Uh, they can do, you know, run a running play and then they're back on the field if they're, if they're clean, you know. Uh, so that would be something good because, like I said, the, the really the holy grail in terms of concussions is to be able to quickly and accurately identify a concussed player and remove yeah. them from play. One thing I wonder if you you do have that like the reaction to see like your eyes could that could your reaction time be affected by if you're on like a bunch of painkillers like a football player might be during a game? Yes and no. If he's on like opiates and opioids, absolutely it could uh, be affected by that. Also, if they're on, you know, uh, you know, some type of, uh, you know, PED, if they're on some type of amphetamine, that could also affect sure. it. You know, I mean, I know it's not 1980s and, you know, Lawrence Taylor isn't playing anymore, but cocaine, absolutely. So, you know, things like <laughs> that uh, uh, need to be taken into account as well. But I would also argue that a player shouldn't be playing if they have to take opiates to play, you know? Yeah. You're right. That, that, that's, that's kind of another issue. Like, if they're taking opiates to play, maybe they shouldn't be playing. And that actually brings me to a point that I was discussing with you before we got on the podcast. Um, do, you, I, do you think that there should be a doctor, like an independent doctor who is able to prevent players who shouldn't be playing anymore from playing? Because we we brought it up in reference to Chris Bosch and maybe Wes Welker. Yeah, so, uh, you know, with, with, with Chris Bosch, he, he was kind of a tricky situation because he had a blood clot in his lungs, a pulmonary embolism. Uh, and, you know, uh, anytime you get a pulmonary embolism, you get a huge workup to see if it's, you know, what well, what caused it. Because it's not just something that, like, happens. It's because of something else. Now, 
Uh, there's a bunch of risk factors for it. You can have a lot of genetic uh, predispositions for it. Um, uh, there's all kinds of things that can cause that to happen. Well, it happened the first time, and then he went on blood thinners, and that's why he couldn't play, because you can't play it while on blood thinners, because that makes going from getting, you know, hit in the head to hit in the head and bleeding into the brain and dying. So, you know, he went on blood thinners, and then, you you know, the first time you get it, you know, you can go off it after six months if the physicians, you know, think you'll manage, and that's what happened. But then he had a recurrence, and then the question is, well, is he ever going to play? Because with most people, if you have a second reoccurrence, you're on blood thinners for life. Um, oh. Yeah. So that's kind of uh, the the big breakdown now. And now again, I know absolutely nothing about his history. I know nothing about what actually caused it, other than like I said, they had the media and the heat of those. He has a blood clot in his lungs, and they hope that he's going to play. Which to me says they probably have some type of idea of what was causing it and have a grasp on how to you know handle that without blood thinners. Um, so as far as a doctor not letting a patient play. I think there should be that. Now, in that case, uh, the Heat doctors, the league would never have signed off on letting Chris Bosch play um, because it, while on blood thinners. They just wouldn't because yeah. it was... <laughs> Too big a risk. Can you think about it? What would happen if the NBA had the first you know, on-court fatality before right. the NFL did? I mean, that would be insane. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's no way that they would do it. But you can also argue that's kind of self-serving. You know, Chris Bosch is a superstar. Um and, you know, that's, that's a really big image problem. The NFL doesn't really have that. If you have some, you know, third string lineman who, you know, probably shouldn't play, but you know what? Nobody knows this guy's name. And he's just, just on, on special, special teams. And he's going to be out of the league in a year anyways. And, you know, so I'll just let him play, you know. Um, but like I said, I think that there needs to be a, a independent physician who, you know, whether it's through the NFLPA or whether it's something completely separate set up, whose their job is to be the second opinion of and responsible solely to the patient. Now, that's great for them, but what about the players that just want to play no matter what? The ones that are, you know, going to more harm to themselves. They're the ones that want to do it. You know, that's a tricky situation, and I think there needs to be some pressure put on teams and stuff like that to not let that happen, because... You know, these guys do want to make that money. They do want it. You know, they only have a very limited window. Um, and again, some people say like, oh, they're, they're, they're grown adults. They know what they're getting into. They have the, you know, chance to sign off on it themselves. And it's like, do they though? Because, you know, we take on risks all the time, right? We go bungee jumping. We jump out of, you know, uh, airplanes. We, you know, we go parachuting. We do all kinds of extreme sports and we're all willing to take on that risk. But we kind of understand the risk that can happen. We understand, oh, the parachute can fail and I will definitely die. We understand the, you know, cord could snap and I will definitely die. Does a player really understand what's going to happen if they have a traumatic brain injury that's going to leave them alive but really debilitated? Yeah, I think that's the one thing because you, I think the more immediate, like when players say we know what we signed up for, I think most of them are thinking, ACL tear kind of things where sure. you're going to the more immediate impact kind of injury where I oh okay my ankle's messed up it's it it's immediately messed up and I have to come back from it you're not thinking long term and I yeah I think I think sometimes you just uh, I'm all for you know personal liberty or this this and that but I think sometimes when it comes to that there has to be someone to save you from yourself I, well, so I, I think that's – it's a dangerous thing to, I think, put it – personally, at least. I think it's a dangerous thing to put it that way uh, because I think that there's a a fundamental difference between the way, like, people who are hyper-competitive – who are literally at the top 0.001% of, like, competitiveness, not just, like, in America but in the world – you know, you tell someone like that, like, no, you can't play, you're injured, when when they've literally been working their whole life towards, like, you know, this is this is part of their ultimate dream, and they, they have, the way they are made, pretty much, is to, like, pursue that, uh, you know, at the risk of everything else. So, I... I, I just I just hesitate to phrase it that way, you know. And I, I know you're not saying that, you know, but like, 
Well, this kind of, I, I kind of didn't want to go into this area, but this does kind of get into an area of psychology and psychiatry. And, you know, we did talk about yeah. addiction and things like that. Well, these players are literally addicted to playing and competing, you know? I mean, you know, Michael Jordan still thinks he's yeah. any player one-on-one, you know? Yeah. Um, and these guys are just so insanely competitive and so wrapped up in that is their identity that to tell them you can't play, to tell them that career is over... That's literally everything that they have. And that's not all players. I'm not saying all players, but there are definitely hyper-competitive players that... Adrian Peterson I, comes well, to mind. Well, most of the successful players are hyper-competitive in that way, yeah. I would argue, right? For that, Because that's that's what gets them to be so successful. That is what gets right. them to that level. But you need to address that, you know, almost addiction when it comes time to tell them, hey, there's more to life than what you're doing. Sure, you gotta you gotta remind them that in the moment there's there's more important things to yeah. And uh, I don't want to be that. I don't want to have that job. That's not gonna be. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a fun job. That sounds like you're gonna have to deal with a lot of people in denial, and a lot of people who are really mad at you, and very much bigger than you. <laughs> I mean, I don't want you want to be the guy who tells Kobe he's coming off the bench. Oh, jeez, no, God, <laughs> damn, no. Oh, 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 boy. Do you, do you? Do you want to be the guy who tells Adrian Peterson that he can't play anymore? I no. there's some sticks around a shirt, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> so I think we got one more really good question for you, and I think me and Sam are both really wondering this. Um, yep. Why does it burn when I pee? Um, you need to go see a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Classic question. Uh, is there anything else? Uh, any Sam, do you have any... Uh, more questions here because we're falling into uh, our uh, our mark here. No, I usually uh, I usually Google all of my uh, my symptoms, so I think I, I think I'm good. I don't really need a, an actual real person doctor to to deal with my myriad of medical. Are there issues. any genuinely reliable WebMD type sites? Um. So what's interesting <laughs> is that your your doctor Google's a lot. Really. <laughs> <laughs> It's not because we don't know the answer. It's not because it's because there's a lot of minutia out there to certain things. I mean, like I don't always know, I don't know the dosage of every single medication out there, even though I give a lot and I know a lot off the top of my head. But every once in a while, I'm like, oh wait, is that you know 750 or 500? What is that? You know, so so there's not a, the the problem is is that or the difference is is that your doctor knows how to parse the information that he sees when he googles versus. Uh, someone who doesn't have an MD. They know when they're looking at things that are rare or like if you Google like various symptoms or if you put various things into it and you're like, oh, it could be that. You know, their, 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 their filter is automatically going to knock off 90% of what you're seeing if they do go that route. Now, they don't usually, I'm not saying that we Google, uh, you know, burns one P plus fever plus, you know, this and that. We don't, we don't do it like that. Usually it's just to look up, you know, usually some minutia or something like that. Uh, but in answer to your question, like, there's not really any great interface where you put in symptoms and you get an answer. They've been toying around with that type of thing for years. Um, and for common things and even uncommon things, it's good, but it's not better than a physician at telling you what it actually is. It can say, uh, hey, based on the symptoms, this is most likely this based on, you know, for these reasons. But it won't actually give you an answer. It won't, doesn't have that decision-making power yet it is kind of alarming whenever i feel like a slight twinge in my knee and i go online and it turns out um i have syphilis and i'm gonna die in a month yeah exactly and you know a lot of these uh you know when you're googling on webmd they're much more they're very sensitive so if you put in you know knee pain it's going to give you everything in the world that can cause knee pain even those things that it's you know less than one in one million chance that it could be it's still going to list it because that's that's how computers work they list everything okay so that's that's good to know maybe next time i go to the office i'm going to try and catch my doctor on googling something that's why the the joke is like on webmd oh it's cancer you know because they always throw that in because you know no matter what it could be cancer like guess what guess what cancer has a lot of different symptoms (laughs) (laughs) um i that was pretty much all the questions I really had, is there anything you wanted to bring up before we finish it up here, Dr. Swickles? <laughs> no, I think uh, I think we covered a lot of a lot of good things. So 
Well, I thanks a lot for coming on. This has been yeah. really informative. This is the this is probably the most actual real life real real person information that we've had on this podcast so far. Yeah, most of the time it's just dick jokes and we've only had like 3 or 4 so far. Yeah. And that that's definitely a record low for this podcast. That's fair. Try to find a urologist to come on for you guys next time. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Please. Excellent. So Thank you again, Dr. Swickles, for coming on to the podcast. It was wonderful to have you. Obviously, you're a doctor, so I don't know if you can really plug yourself unless you'd be like, hey, if you really want to get hurt and you need an anesthesiologist, come to me. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm not really going to plug myself. I'll say uh, you should read thedrawplay.com if you don't already. So, in other words, mom, read thedrawplay.com. <laughs> And yeah, for everyone who knows, whenever I draw a doctor, it's it's our guest right now. It is Doctor Swickles. Sam. Yeah. Uh, you what can, have you got? You can find me at uh, at Sam G R E S Z E S E S E S on Twitter. Um, I also write for GameSkinny.com. Uh, you can find me there. I'm also on Instagram at Robots and t-rexes um and uh that's that's about it other than a couple other things that i can't really say at this point oh mystery i've got got projects spoiler alert they might have to do with pokemon no surprises yeah i don't i don't even think you had to no no i didn't even i I think automatically saying I have projects. We just automatically like, went to Pokemon. What are you? Are you? Are you? Are you part of a a a, a group that's now making full size like Pikachu costumes? Are you? Are you recording a freestyle rap album based on the original Pokemon TV show? Uh, you know, I'd listen to that. Can I say I've officially changed my mind about appearing on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> we got all the information it's we needed. Too late. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I am Drawplay Dave. You can find me on Twitter at Drawplay Dave, on Facebook at the Drawplay Comic, on Patreon, and of course on thedrawplay.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Sam and Dr. Swickles, for coming on. Uh, we'll hear from you next week, and God bless America. <laughs>